When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have Dr. Richard Wagaman as my guest today. He has taught at Georgetown University since 1977 and has been a clinical professor of psychiatry since 1992. He is also an emeritus supervising and training analyst at the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis. In addition, he is a well-respected author. With regard to his career, he has said, I have practiced clinical psychoanalysis for over 40 years. Initially, my publications were mostly on psychoanalysis. In 2002, he made a discovery and learned that the traditional theory about who wrote the works of William Shakespeare is faith-based, not evidence-based. As he plunged deeply into primary research on this exciting topic, he learned that the Geneva Bible owned by the Earl of Oxford, now at the Folger Shakespeare Library, has marginalia and underlinings that Roger Strittmatter shows correspond closely with biblical echoes in Shakespeare. He then researched the whole book of Psalms and discovered it was the largest Psalms literary source for Shakespeare. He has also published evidence that many other Elizabethan works were also written by the Earl of Oxford anonymously using pen names or alonyms. Now he has contributed to a new book that was just published by Rutledge entitled New Psychoanalytic Readings of Shakespeare, Cool Reasons and Seething Brains. The title of his chapter is What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Psychological Complexity. So we have a lot to cover here, Rick. Yes. Uh, why don't we get started? I have a lot of questions. Good. Uh, let's start with your passion for Shakespeare. Yeah, well, thanks for asking about that. And it is indeed a passion. So stop me after an hour or so uh, with that first question. So it does go (laughs) back to childhood, as many things do. We know that. Um, I must have started reading Shakespeare when I was about 13. Uh, We had some plays assigned in school, and then I read others on my own. And in fact, uh, I joined the Literary Guild, and we got a a free book offer if we joined. And the free book I got was actually two books, two volumes of the complete works of Shakespeare. And I found that very exciting to own his complete works, or I thought they were his complete works. But on the dust jacket, it said, unfortunately, we know very little about Shakespeare. So this collided with my love of reading biographies of famous people as a boy. I read a lot of them. They were written specifically for children. And it was painful that here was an author I admired so much, and we knew so very little about him. So fast forward uh, to 2020, sorry, 2002, when I read in the New York Times about that person you mentioned, the scholar Roger Strittmatter, who spent eight years doing dissertation research at the Folger Shakespeare Library on the Bible that you mentioned, 
we have the records that it was purchased new by Edward Devere, Earl of Oxford, I'll call him Oxford for short, and that he had many, many passages marked uh, with his quill uh, by underlining the verse number, underlining the whole verse or portions of the verse, writing key words in the margin. In one case, writing uh, a word in the margin that was not a key word. And uh, Roger then became the first person in the United States to earn a PhD in literature based on a dissertation that contended that the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare. Uh, and that's so controversial that there was an effort to uh, stop his university from awarding him his degree, but he succeeded. So that's what I read about the New York Times that uh, ignited my interest in finding out who was the real Shakespeare. So I think you might've answered this, but I, I was thinking about the, the uh, your, well, what aspects of the Shakespeare authorship question have interested you, but I guess this goes back to your boyhood, uh, your childhood, and and also this this discovery of this material that you just mentioned. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, for In example, previous... go ahead. Yeah, sure. No, no, no. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, it reminds me of something Freud uh, said, or actually he wrote, uh, he wrote a speech when he accepted the Goethe Award uh, in literature, uh, for the uh, quality of his writing style. Uh, he said that it is uh, painful to us to want to know more about an author like Shakespeare and find that uh, what we do know uh, is, is uh, not as much as we would like. And that when we come to the person that Freud thought wrote Shakespeare, namely the Earl of Oxford, some of the facts we learn are disappointing, even disillusioning. Uh, just to give one example, he had a terrible temper. He killed a servant when he was 17. He would have gotten the death penalty for that, but his uh, guardian, uh, Lord uh, William Burley, uh, defended him, and he got off uh, with the ridiculous theory that the servant had committed suicide on uh, the Earl of Oxford's sword. But So that's what Freud meant, that we want to think that the writers we idealize are as perfect as people as their writings are. And that's not true of Oxford. And he thought that might be one reason people would rather think it's this shadowy person from Stratford we know so little about. And then we can just assume that he must have been a wonderful person. Yeah. Uh, on that topic, uh, that his name is even spelled differently, as I recall. Yeah, I think it sure is. H-A-K-S-P-E-R-E of That's Stratford. Right. Is that yeah. mm -hmm. And you know, Karen, what's really interesting about that is how the Shakespeare scholars have evolved on that score of how to spell his name. To their credit, up through the 19th century, the Shakespeare scholars spelled the name of the person differently from how they spelt the author's name. They had no doubt they were one and the same person, and yet they acknowledged that difference. And that difference becomes even more significant when we examine it closely, because uh, in the early years, about one third of the plays were spelled with Shakespeare hyphenated. Now, that may seem uh, trivial, because we know so many British last names are hyphenated, uh, but that was not true in the Elizabethan era when Shakespeare lived. Yeah, names yeah, not that. hyphenated uh, in the 19th century due to a change in the inheritance law. So back then in his day, a hyphenated name usually meant a fake name. Mm -hmm. I also believe this William Shakespeare of Stratford was a businessman, and and I think Stanley Wells said not that learned. Not that uh, I don't think he sure did. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. And yeah. I learned something more about that just this summer. Uh, I like to uh, read earlier Shakespeare uh, criticism because uh, often it's refreshing. And this is an example. So back in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, people who wrote about Shakespeare were a bit obsessed with uh, Aristotle's theory about tragedy uh, and the so-called 
unities of time and place that a that a proper tragedy had to take place within a 24-hour span. Anyway, they were shocked that Shakespeare could have been such a good writer, but he violated these unities. He broke the rules of drama, and that was shocking. So that's one reason they concluded he wasn't that learned. He was a natural genius, and that was believed to be all you needed to write the greatest works in English literature is just to be a genius, that you don't need to be learned, you don't, you don't need a university education. There is no documentation that Shakespeare or Stratford even had a grammar school education. So there's a bit of circular thinking. Uh, they're sure they're correct, that is the Shakespeare scholars, that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Therefore, they won't even consider the possibility Shakespeare is a pen name. So their whole case, which they believe is so uh, ironclad, so perfectly 100% proven, uh, is based on a, an assumption that they have no evidence for that it couldn't have been a pen name, even though a scholar at Penn State named Marcy North wrote a whole book called The Anonymous Renaissance, showing that most uh, literary works in that period were written anonymously. It was a carryover from the tradition of uh, medieval literature. Uh, so there is every reason to believe Shakespeare could have been a pen name. I believe it was. They won't even consider that. So they're on very shaky grounds with their alleged certainty, which troubles me in terms of intellectual honesty. Well, I could certainly see why it would trouble you. And I, I'm thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about authors today. Their psychology is important yes. and as well as what they write. But this idea with Shakespeare, thinking about the psychology of the author uh, and not just his or her work, it seems like that's met with resistance. It sure is. Uh, yeah. I, uh, do, you, do you have any idea why? Um, yes, I do, Karen, and thank you for asking that. That's something I, I've uh, been really, really puzzled by and curious about. Uh, and I just came up with uh, one factor that I think has had more influence than has been acknowledged. So this has to do with uh, a biography of Shakespeare of Stratford that was written in 1898 by one of the uh, most prominent Shakespeare scholars of that time, Sir Sidney Lee. And so he wrote an article saying that uh, we have so little biographical information about that person from Stratford, the businessman, uh, relevant to his writings, that we must uh, dig deeper by looking at Shakespeare's sonnets, because the sonnets are lyric poetry and lyric poetry is the most personal genre of poetry. So there's every reason to believe that these sonnets written by Shakespeare are going to tell us a lot about him as an individual. So that was what he said in this uh, article in uh, August in uh, 1898. By December, four months later, he published a revised edition of that article without acknowledging he had revised or changed anything, without explaining why. He did a 180. He said it is a big mistake to look for any biographical clues in Shakespeare's sonnets. Well, why would that be? So a theory I encountered a few months ago is that Oscar Wilde in 1895, just three years earlier, in one of his uh, criminal trials for sodomy for homosexuality, cited Shakespeare's sonnets in his defense. Oscar Wilde said, look, the greatest writer in the English language was clearly bisexual. He wrote all these love poems to a young man, the fair youth. So what's wrong with it? So somebody must have warned Sidney Lee, uh, this, this article speculates, that he was going to get himself in big trouble. Uh, he would be lumped with Oscar Wilde if he said that Shakespeare's bisexual sonnets were autobiographical, and he better drop that like a hot potato. And he did. And since Sidney Lee never married and homosexuality was a criminal offense at that time in England and elsewhere, uh, it's plausible. The theory to me is plausible uh, that uh, perhaps he was conflicted about his own homosexuality, which he kept secret. 
uh, and that he uh, decided that it's a mistake to out Shakespeare as having been bisexual. So uh, that may sound like a stretch, I realize, but if you look at what happened to literary theory during the ensuing years, it wasn't too much longer that people were starting to say, no, no, there's no important connection between an author and their works. Now that that belief, uh, that mistake has taken various forms, but we've heard of the uh, death of the author and so on. And I believe that's when it began. Well, I, I think that's very enlightening and I'm glad that you said that. I, I have a, personally a bit of problem, a, a bit of trouble thinking about that today when every single thing about a person uh, is put on Instagram or posted here or posted there about a person's life, whether they be an actor, an academic, a politician. I mean, you just can't avoid the person's life. Right. So that's why it's it's, uh, it's it's puzzling to me. I understand why it might have happened, but why people would hold on to that idea today is that's what's curious to me. And you know, Karen, it's a very small fraction of the total population who hold on to that idea. It's not the general public. It's not people who love reading fiction. It's not authors of fiction, with rare exceptions. It's the English professors who teach, teach these kind of dogmatic ideas about literary theory, which has gone through many permutations over the last century. Uh, and they are out of step with the general public. Well, I guess that would explain it to some extent. Uh, in your chapter, you talk about how enormously enriched, uh, well, everybody could be by a more open-minded search for his identity. And that reminded me, this whole discussion reminded me of the idea of mentalizing. And oh, yes. we don't need to get into that whole concept, but what I've yeah. I've I've uh, sort of paraphrased that word in, in one of my books and talk about listening in an atmosphere of respect without passing judgment on the views of others. So just just being respectful of someone else's views, that doesn't seem to happen with this group. Uh, so why do you think it's so difficult? You've answered this in part, but for Shakespearean scholars to to consider this to even even think there's there might be something to it well, you know, uh, it doesn't it raise the possibility that they know they're on very thin ice uh, mm -hmm. they know in their hearts that their theory is only a theory and it has many holes in it and it always has and they don't want anyone to look too closely uh, like the wizard of oz you know ignore the man behind the curtain I am the great wizard, so I am the great professor, and 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 don't look too closely at how I've come up with this. I can tell you some really funny stories about this, Karen. Uh, there was a movie, I don't know if you heard of it or saw it, uh, directed by Roland Emmerich around 2012 called Anonymous. And it was a fantastic, fictionalized, imaginative narrative of the Earl of Oxford uh, as the true Shakespeare I don't agree with all the details in it. Even the screenwriter did. And I saw an interview between the screenwriter and the director, and they, they had disagreements about how they did it, and they fudged a bunch of things. And yet it really captured the public's imagination. A lot of people saw it and loved it. Well, the Shakespeare professors were not happy. So they uh, organized the publication of a book titled Shakespeare Beyond Doubt. So Sir Stanley Wells who was the president of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in Stratford-on-Avon in England, was co-editor of that book. And uh, I saw a hilarious review of the book once it was published by the editor of the Shakespeare newsletter, uh, where he was praising the book up one end, down the other. And he said, there is only one slight weakness in the book. They never show what the evidence is that we know for sure that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. So that's a pretty significant shortcoming in a book that purports to refute the film Anonymous by claiming there's no doubt whatsoever and they forgot to show their evidence. So that's kind of a funny story, but it captures a lot that I think is 
is why they get so touchy about it. Uh, what they're used to doing is going on the attack. So they only play offense. Meanwhile, they don't have any defensive lines. And if you can do an end run, you get to the lack of evidence for their contention. And you know what they do then? They said, oh, it doesn't matter. We don't really care who wrote Shakespeare. Believe it or not, that's what they say. And that fits with a cynical theory. I don't know who came up with this, that a paradigm shift, that is the replacement of one commonly object, uh, uh, shared view of reality with a new revised uh, uh, shared view of reality goes through three stages. When you introduce the new paradigm, such as continental drift uh, or the Earl of Oxford was the real Shakespeare. The first reaction is that's ridiculous. So there's a lot of mockery going on, as you may be aware. A fairly prominent colleague, who's also an English professor, said on the listserv of the American Psychological Association that I was delusional for thinking the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare. And a week or two later, he said it had been pointed out to him that we should be more respectful on the listserv and we shouldn't say things like that. But at the end of that second post, he said, but I am delusional. Anybody agrees with me is delusional. So how, how would that happen? So that's the mockery. That's the first stage. Well, the second stage is, uh, oh, what difference does it make? It doesn't matter to me. I run into that a lot. For these 20 years I've been working on this, I'll get into detailed conversations with friends who were Shakespeare professors and as I'm bringing up all the evidence, like Oxford's Bible, they don't have anything approaching that to defend their guy. We have the Bible that was purchased by the Earl of Oxford that marks passages that are echoed in works of Shakespeare that weren't published until after the death of the merchant. So you can't say that, you know, that this is somebody that just watched the plays and then marked up his own Bible. So what they'll say is, oh, it doesn't really matter, does it? Well, and I'll usually say, well, if it doesn't matter to you, it does matter to me. So let's agree it was Errol Oxford. So this is now happening, believe it or not, with some of the most prominent Shakespeare scholars. In an interview, Marjorie Garber of Harvard, who wrote a fantastic book uh, with a chapter on every single one of Shakespeare's plays, it is one of the best resources. Uh, when she was interviewed about this, she said, she didn't care who it was who wrote Shakespeare. She admitted she hasn't read any of the articles uh, casting doubt on the traditional author and you know, Roger Strittmatter's amazing work on the Bible of Oxford. Doesn't matter to her. So we're starting to hear that. So we are transitioning to that second stage of a paradigm shift. The third stage, by the way, is, oh, I always said that. <laughs> I forgot that stage, yes. <laughs> So we can cross our fingers. We'll get there soon. That would be that would be great. Um, what about other colleagues? How have they reacted to your chapter? I think I know what some academics have how they've reacted, but maybe not all. But what about um, psychoanalysts or other colleagues? Karen, yeah. that's been really interesting and, um, and and very gratifying. I have to say. Uh, this has come up on the, again, the listserv of APSA. And uh, the, the the colleague who said I was delusional was rebuked publicly by lots of people. Uh, one person memorably said, uh, he, he quoted what this uh, colleague had said in addition to saying I was delusional, that I had been very fair to him when he was under attack for something he had said. I had posted in his defense about another topic altogether, that he was a true scholar. And she basically said, uh, okay, I don't know the facts of this case about Shakespeare, but just judging about your characters, I'm going to side with Rick Wagaman because he treats people more decently than you. And she was one of several people who uh, defended me. Uh, and on a, such a contentious issue, I think one motivation for these years of mockery of people that question the self-appointed authorities is it's a warning. It's a warning to other people. Don't you dare question our authority or you'll be next. So mm -hmm. it is, it's a form of bullying. And it really is a complete contradiction of our ideal of academic freedom, isn't it? 
because academic freedom is not the freedom to agree with the authorities. It's the opposite. It's it's the freedom Absolutely. to disagree. If you can provide evidence, so uh, all of my research has been based on, just like Roger Strittmatter uh, is my uh, is my role model, uh, that he found amazing evidence that has been completely ignored by the mainstream scholars. Well, I had to comment myself on, on that um, post because I go back to the idea of mentalizing, listening to other people in an atmosphere of respect without putting the other person down. You don't have to agree right. to listen in a respectful way to somebody else. So that's totally uh, out of the ballpark as far as I'm concerned for uh, psychoanalysts and for anybody else, really. Thank you, Karen. Uh, and I hope that we will eventually regard it as tantamount to conceding defeat. If somebody has to make a personal attack like that, you just know yeah. they don't have a strong intellectual case or they would make the case rather than attacking a person. Exactly. Um, I was going to ask you about Freud. I guess I will. You might have answered this in part, but I think Freud believed that um, connecting literary works with Oxford, Oxford's life would deepen our psychoanalytic understanding of these works. Um, but yet it seems like, but this is part I think you've answered, there remains surprisingly, uh, some of these people are remain uh, unfamiliar with uh, this other theory. So it's unfamiliar to Shakespearean scholars. Uh, I guess the idea of a psychoanalytic understanding of the person. Um, I guess you, you're saying the same thing Freud said, or Freud said the same thing you're saying. Um, oh, yeah. No, I agree. He deserves all the credit for this. And as we're continuing this conversation, and of course, I become aware that the uh, narrative I've described so far about the Shakespeare professors being completely out of step with the general public is oversimplified, which is ironic because my chapter is about what Shakespeare teaches about complexity. So I need to uh, back up and apologize for oversimplifying a complex topic. It's not just the Shakespeare professors who really love the story about the simple person from Stratford who, because of genius and hard work, became the greatest writer in the English language. That is one of the core narratives that appeals to all of us, uh, the core narrative of ascent from humble beginnings, uh, overcoming obstacles to enormous success. We all love that story. Now, one thing that struck me, this goes back, we had a talk at the Cosmos Club by the art curator of the Folger Shakespeare Library. And it turns out uh, even though Mr. Folger, the founder, Mr. and Mrs. Folger founded that wonderful institution, they paid quite a lot of money for the first folios. It's the largest collection of the 1623 first editions of Shakespeare's nearly complete plays um, in the world. There are about 270 that survive and about 80 of them are there at the Folger. They paid far more for a particular painting from 1789 uh, the artist was George Romney. Now I've been working at the Folger once or twice a week for years. Uh, not that visual. I just hadn't really noticed it until this art curator gave us a talk and had a slide of it. So let me just tell you the title because uh, that says everything. The title of the painting is The Birth of the Infant Shakespeare, Surrounded by Nature and the Passions. So if you visualize the nativity scene and swap out Shakespeare for the baby Jesus. That's what the painting is. It has oh, angels wow. up in the sky and everything. So if you just keep, imagine that image and keep it in mind and reflect on it, where it leads you, I think, is inevitably to the possibility that at some level, consciously, unconsciously, people uh, in that period of the late 18th century, the Enlightenment, where there were many, many substantial challenges to religious orthodoxy, uh, and many intellectuals no longer had conventional beliefs in God. Well, it leaves a vacuum, doesn't it? 
if for centuries, belief in God uh, kind of guides people's life and their sense of morality and their sense of the proper order. After all, you live in a monarchy and you know that you have to respect the monarch because the divine right of kings, you believe all that. And you take that away and what are you left with? A void. So nature absorbs mm-hmm. a vacuum. So you don't have the baby Jesus to worship anymore. So now you have the baby Shakespeare. It's pretty clear cut. So that Shakespeare became a surrogate, unconscious surrogate divinity for intellectuals. And I believe that is still true at this moment, that many people get so angry if you question who wrote Shakespeare, because at an unconscious level, they do deify Shakespeare, they worship Shakespeare. The the historical Jesus, whether or not he was born in a manger, was born in humble circumstances and is believed by many people to have been divine. So you have a kind of parallel narrative. Not only that, if you look at those few sparse biographical facts about the early life of Shakespeare, the merchant in Stratford, there's a period of several years where there's no documentation. Well, it turns out there was a period of several years of the life of the historical Jesus that's not documented. And those years have been referred to as the lost years. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? With Shakespeare, they refer to the lost years. And so they can speculate all they want about what he was doing, that he was a school teacher for a noble family, got connections that way. Oh, no, he was a clerk in a law office, so he learned everything he needed to learn about law. They make stuff up. They're really good at making things up. But they're a little sneaky. They, they won't really be clear about how much of the biography is speculation. Although a few Shakespeare scholars will say it's almost all speculation. We don't know very much. So I think that's another important element in terms of the complexity of why there's been widespread belief in this tradition of who wrote Shakespeare. Well, I guess if you have lost years, you can quote unquote find a lot. That's right. It's very convenient, uh, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, on a slightly different note, uh, I, I'm wondering, there are a lot of people who could have written a chapter in this book, in this new yeah. book. Do you know why you were invited to write uh, write a chapter? Well, thanks for asking, Karen. I have some ideas about it. I, I went back through my emails and saw that uh, early in the pandemic, I did not register to attend the annual meeting of the Shakespeare Association of America uh, because we're being really, really careful and still are about avoiding uh, the the, the COVID virus. Uh, And then they changed the plan and said it was going to be by Zoom. Uh, So I had not registered and I saw that there was a a seminar on psycholytic approaches to Shakespeare. I've been to some of those seminars before, uh, and the annual meeting of the Shakespeare Association of America has few plenary sessions. It's mostly like the discussion groups at the APSA meetings. Uh, It's mostly these seminars limited to 15, 20 people uh, who each write a paper and present it, circulate it among the people at the uh, seminar, and they discuss it, a three-hour meeting. And this one had two uh, co-leaders, and they usually allow auditors, that is, you can sit around the back of the room. Uh, well, this was a Zoom meeting. So I wrote to them, I said, can I audit? And they said, unfortunately not. Uh, we think that would be disruptive. And I explained that I was really interested in this topic uh, as a clinical psychoanalyst. And I thought that might be a fresh perspective since uh, people in English literature who use psycholytic theory uh, with rare exceptions do not have clinical training in psychoanalysis. Many of them have had uh, good experiences in analysis themselves. I've, I've met uh, prominent Shakespeare scholars at national meetings who, when they find out I'm an analyst, tell me how helpful their analysis was to them, which is always good to hear. So anyway, but they were very interested to make contact with me, and they said they were fascinated to know there is a clinical psychoanalyst who shares their interest in Shakespeare research. So they then contacted me later and said uh, they were putting together the presentations given at that seminar as a book proposal, and would I be willing to write a chapter? And within 24 hours, I said, of course I would be. (laughs) So I I really appreciated that invitation. So that's how it came about. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, well, it was good that you were persistent. (laughs) (laughs) And they said they specifically wanted me to write about a clinician's perspective on Uh this topic. Yeah. Well, you did a good job. Thank you. Thank you very Uh, much. 
I'm curious about the title, what Shakespeare teaches us about psychological complexity. I mean, you could have chosen anything, obviously, there are many things. I could have narrowed it down much more, couldn't I? So I was deliberately choosing a broad topic because I had a lot I wanted to work in in limited uh, number of pages. And I thought that might capture a lot. And in terms of the importance of tolerating complexity, I've inadvertently already given an example of that in our conversation by oversimplifying and saying it's only the Shakespeare professors who are stubborn about uh, questioning who the real Shakespeare was. Um, so that has always, well, that has struck me for a long time about psychoanalysis, since the topic of the book had to do with theory. Uh, and literary theory uh, is the predominant way of approaching literature. This was not true until the 20th century. Uh, since ancient times, Aristotle and others have written about literature, uh, writing about Sophocles tragedies and so on, not guided by a single kind of tunnel vision theory, but having a broad view. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy reading the, uh, the earlier Shakespeare scholarship that is more broad-minded and uh, follows common sense, I think, more closely than, than, than the 20th, 21st century literary theory. Also, my goal was to convince the co-editors that clinical psychoanalysts might have something new to offer the Shakespeare scholars. So for many years, one of my goals in the Shakespeare research I do is to get published in mainstream journals and books. And that's a struggle. Uh, one, and this is a long answer. I, I hope you'll bear with me. Um, one, uh, that Shakespeare newsletter I mentioned before asked for uh, people to volunteer to review books. And I said, I'd be happy to. So they sent me a book. I reviewed it. I sent them my review. And I didn't hear anything month after month after month. And I finally said, what's going on? And they said, well, we have to apologize to you. We would never publish anything by an Oxfordian. So an Oxfordian is someone who shares Freud's opinion that the Earl of Oxford wrote all of the works of Shakespeare. So to their credit, they were upfront about that. They said yeah. they had made a mistake. Uh, many, many other journals would not admit it, but they really do have a taboo against publishing anything that calls into question their traditional theory. Uh, one interesting example is after I had published quite a lot about this uh, whole book of Psalms, and I, I should explain, Roger Strittmatter did his dissertation on the Geneva Bible purchased by the Earl of Oxford in 1570 at the age of 20. New. Some people have said, oh, it was a used copy. No, it was a new copy he marked up. Uh, at the back was the Elizabethan hymnal. So the hymnal back then consisted of the Psalms of David. But this translation that was bound with his Bible was a specific translation in regular poetic meter so it could be sung by the congregations at church services. So the other translations wouldn't, you couldn't sing them very well unless it was the professional choir because it's not in a regular meter, common meter, that kind of thing. Uh, so what I found uh, was that there were 14 of those psalms that had a uh, big pointing hand in the margin um, called a manicule, a pointing hand. Each of the 14 was different. That was already a departure from the way other Elizabethan uh, readers marked their books. So to have a fist pointing hand manicule was not that unusual, but usually one reader uses the same one, like a signature every time. Not the Earl of Oxford. Each of the 14 was different. So uh, I wondered what to make of that. But I thought, you know, Roger Strittmatter spent eight years. If there was anything there, he would have found it. But finally, I saw that one of the Psalms had wording that was so similar to one of the sonnets. And uh, I wrote to Roger about that, and he said, that's significant. He said, you need to study that. He said, I, I was tired by the time I had finished the Bible, the Book of Revelations, and gotten to those Psalms. I didn't really spend much time with them. So for the next two weeks, I kept sending him new discoveries of connections between the wording of these Psalms marked with a pointing hand 
and the wording of the sonnets or later on plays or later on the long poem, The Rape of Lucrece. And I finally had enough that he said, well, you need to submit this to a journal without letting them know how you found it. Because if they know that you found this in Oxford's Bible, they'll reject your manuscript. So there's a journal called Notes and Queries published by Oxford University Press. It's been published since around 1850. So I sent them uh, seven brief notes because that's what they publish, brief notes. And they said, okay, that's enough, stop, stop. And so they then told me to get, take those seven notes and write one long article. It's very rare that they publish something like that. Uh, and so they published that in 2009 and then in 2010, another long article based on further notes I had sent them. And uh, after a few years, I discovered online, you could see uh, which articles in that journal had been the most read during the previous month, the top 50 articles, going back to 1850. Um, and for several years, my two articles were among those top 50, in some cases, number one and number two. Uh, so people were paying attention because the title of the first one was the uh, whole book of Psalms uh, is a major literary source for the works of Shakespeare uh, that had been virtually unknown before then. So this was thanks to Oxford's Bible. Karen, I hope you remember what you asked because I'm now, I've gotten down this rabbit hole and I can't climb up what the question was. I apologize. Oh no, it's, it was right on target. Oh, good. <laughs> it was about, yeah, the, your chapter. Um, I, I wonder why they asked you to write the chapter. And I think, I, I think it's clear you have quite an expertise in this area. I, I understand why they uh, invited you to write the chapter. Uh, did you have complete freedom? Well, in writing this is complicated. I want to emphasize how grateful I am uh, to James Newland and Jimmy Stone, the co-editors, uh, for going out on a limb. Um, and I think it is unusual to invite an Oxfordian to contribute to a mainstream Shakespeare publication. So uh, I'm in their debt. Uh, what happened was... Uh, as they read my successive drafts, they said, well, I'm not sure anyone really cares about the Earl of Oxford. Uh, we don't really care about that part of your chapter, but we love other parts. And they gave me really excellent editorial feedback about organization. Uh, I tend to write, uh, you know, the way a free associated in analysis, and that's not very easy for the reader. So they told me to have section heads and move this there and this there and expand on this to my surprise. They wanted me to expand on what I'd written about dissociation and DID and Hamlet. Um, and I love thee once, I love thee not. So I did. So I expanded greatly on that. And so they said, um, please take everything you've written about the Earl of Oxford and put it in an endnote. So I did. And a few months later, they said, please delete that endnote. So I have a very rebellious streak. And I have to confess to you, uh, Aaron, and I hope people listening to this will keep it to themselves. At that point, I wasn't sure I would continue. I, I was really tempted to say, forget it. Uh, but I'm glad I persevered. I guess my doubt was how much more time to invest in rewriting? Because what if they ended up saying, sorry, we're, we've decided not to include your chapter at all? And that seemed like a real possibility. But thank heavens, I, I went ahead and deleted that, that note. Uh, they did allow me to have a few things in the chapter where I said, I think we could learn much more about Shakespeare if we were open-minded uh, in exploring who he really was. So that was quite bold of them. And they're they're younger. And I think the younger Shakespeare scholars are indeed more open-minded about this. And then uh, the editor of an Oxfordian publication I often publish in that uh, doesn't mind at all if you say things about the Earl of Oxford, when he found out about this long uh, endnote, uh, uh, four or five pages, he asked me to send it to him, and he's going to publish it next month in the annual uh, Oxfordian publication. So it will be in print. Great. I think we might be talking about a term you use in your uh, chapter, groupthink. Yes, I think that's what we're what we're really talking about here. So can you tell our listeners how exactly you're using that term and how it applies that's to people true. To I think be happy yeah. to. I think it's a really, really worthwhile concept that that applies to all of us, including me. 
Irving Janis, J-A-N-I-S, I think came up with it. Some people have corrected me and they said, no, it was George Orwell, but they're thinking of doublethink. Groupthink is not the same as George Orwell's doublethink, although you can see how it's easy to confuse them because both are cognitive distortions. Uh, groupthink actually happens, doublethink was in this uh, uh, dystopia in 1984. Uh, so uh, I think groupthink was first described in organizations, organizational dysfunction. I believe something was written about the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco. It almost led to nuclear war between us and the Soviet Union. And it has to do with uh, a group of people with uh, organizational responsibility who feel uh, such a strong pull to have a consensus, to, to agree with one another, and disagreement is not tolerated. So it's been expanded far beyond that. Um, my wife, Elizabeth Wagman, was a regular blogger for Psychology Today for many years, and she did a blog on groupthink in academia. Uh, she has a PhD in medieval French literature. She, shot, she taught at Duke. She taught at Johns Hopkins just as the French literary theory was coming to the United States through the French department at Johns Hopkins. So she saw how she has a lot of experience with how it works if you're a graduate student uh, uh, hoping to get your PhD, there are certain things you don't question if you wanna get your PhD. Uh, so the group think would be those common unproven beliefs that the group shares that then has the huge advantage of creating group cohesiveness. But it creates this cohesiveness at certain costs having to do with a challenge to that belief. And it is characteristic of the group, psychology of groupthink to attack anyone who challenges core group assumptions. However, many other disagreements the group has, and when it comes to Shakespeare scholars, they have plenty of disagreements among themselves. But the core belief, we know who wrote Shakespeare, we're not gonna challenge that. We're not even going to bother giving evidence for it because we don't need to. We just make fun of somebody who questions it. We'll just call them delusional and people will back off. That is characteristic. It doesn't just, it's not just limited to Shakespeare scholars. It's not just limited to academics. So uh, in our own field, uh, there's a, Ralph Greenson wrote a wonderful article, The Fate of New Ideas in Psychoanalysis. I think this was in the 1960s, published in the Journal of the American Psycholytic Association. And he talked about how psychoanalysts reacted to theories that were not the mainstream theories in the U.S. And I think the Kleinian theory was an example he gave. And he gave, to his credit, he gave himself as an example of someone who had previously been intolerant of new theoretical ideas, such as uh, Klein's ideas. Uh, so uh, I think we always need to be reminded of uh, the the unconscious power of groupthink uh, and uh, how it undermines our search for truth. It certainly undermines academic freedom. And so the nasty ad hominem attacks are absolutely characteristic. Let me give a lesser known example. Uh, it, was, uh, it was presented to me by my good friend, Jim Hutchinson, a brilliant uh, analyst who reminded me Ignaz uh, Semmelweis was a Viennese obstetrician in the 19th century who was so concerned about the huge rate of maternal deaths after childbirth from uh, infection, purple sepsis, that he thought about what might be happening. And it was uh, common practice for obstetricians to go from one delivery room to another delivering babies without washing their hands, which is pretty shocking to us. So all he said was, let's try sterilizing our hands. He didn't use soap and water. He used carbolic acid, which was stronger. And so he did a research study of his own uh, patients, women giving childbirth, and the uh, death rate dropped significantly when he sterilized his hands uh, after one delivery before doing another. So he presents his findings to his colleagues, and they said, that's wonderful. We're going to do this. We'll save lives. No. That's not how they reacted. They said, you're crazy. You're crazy. We've always done it this way. 
our teachers did it this way. You're crazy. So believe it or not, they not only didn't accept it, they kind of gas lit him or gaslighted. They used gaslighting on him. He ended up going into a psychiatric hospital where the attendants beat him to death. That's how he died. So that's one example of groupthink, pretty dramatic. Another one that's better known is Continental Drift, was discovered uh, around 1915 by Alfred Wegener, who was not a professional geologist. I believe he was a meteorologist and had a, an interest in geology. So he not only looked at the coastline of South America and the coastline of Africa and saw, as every school child does when you look at a globe, gee, those could fit together. Those could really fit together. He came up with about 20 uh, lines of evidence to support his theory of continental drift, including rare fossils on the coastline of South America and the corresponding coastline of Africa that didn't exist anywhere else except for those two locations. He even had a theory about the energy source to move the, the continents. So uh, this was widely applauded by professional geologists. No, it wasn't. He was right, widely ridiculed by professional geologists who said, come on now, you have no training, you have no credentials. What university do you teach at? You're a nobody. So they totally rejected his idea until World War II when the invention of sonar for uh, submarine warfare uh, gave them new tools to, to explore the, uh, the ocean floor. And through the use of sonar, they did discover uh, plate tectonics. Uh, and they then apologized to Wegener. No, they didn't apologize. You know what they said? They said, well, he wasn't persuasive enough. So I may sound a little upset about this, but it's, it's human nature. What can what can you say? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I guess, um, as you say, that's the first stage when someone comes up with something that's um, revolutionary, unique, goes against the grain. Um, the first step is to um, ridicule it. Yes. Ridicule it denounce and ridicule not just say it's not true but really to put the person source down in a to major silence, way to shame them and to, yeah, to, to warn everyone else don't even think of questioning us or, or you'll be next yeah yeah it's kind so of I'm, messenger so i'm wondering about one of my favorite topics of as you know, I'm very interested in projective identification and have written um, several books about it and how it's employed uh, in politics with bullies in cases of domestic violence. Um, and I have a question about it with regard to Shakespeare's work, but I'm also interested in, in what you think about this, this period where people denounce and shame others it seems like there may be some of that projective they may be projecting something onto this person who has this new information uh so it you have thoughts about that projective oh, i completely or agree and I'm, I'm glad you brought up that perspective because you're right i had not given a lot of thought but let me give you a personal example uh back around 2004 maybe two years into my uh interest in this topic, I presented on it at a meeting of the uh, American Academy of Psychoanalysis. My colleague at Chestnut Lodge, Ann Silver, was president of that organization, very, very active in it. And she was often encouraging those of us at Chestnut Lodge to present at the annual meetings of that organization. So I, I did give several presentations, one of them on uh, Shakespeare. And uh, I, I was quite excited that afterwards, the uh, editor of their journal, uh, said uh, he hoped I would uh, submit my presentation. Um, he'd like to publish it. However, um, when he sent it to peer reviewers, uh, two of them liked it and recommended acceptance. And the third one was a Shakespeare scholar who said, this is ridiculous. This is just utterly ridiculous. Um, no, you absolutely should not publish it. Uh, so uh, one of the criticisms was that I was confusing external evidence with internal evidence. And I thought, oh my God, I'm sure he's right. He's a professor. He's an English professor. 
I don't even know what he's talking about. So he must be right that that I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm talking about, internal evidence, external evidence. And so I think the dynamics you're describing were probably operating that my submission made him uncomfortable. And for a moment, he might have thought, well, gee, maybe I'm wrong. No, 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 I couldn't be wrong. He's wrong. And so that the way he described what was wrong with my submission did kind of induce self-doubt in me, uh, which may have relieved him of his self-doubt. So yes, I do think you're correct about not just project projection, but the project projective identification that by definition stirs up the unwanted feeling in the other person. Yes, you, you actually comment about this, this process in your book, and I, I wanted to ask you about it. Sure. Uh, you say something interesting about Hamlet. I believe it was on page 16 in your chapter, and, and this is a quote. Hamlet's encounter with Ophelia here follows immediately after his soliloquy about the allure of suicide. Ophelia is one of the several characters Hamlet feels betrayed by who dies by the play's end. We might even wonder whether Hamlet unconsciously, projectively identifies with suicidal impulses into Ophelia, who goes on to enact them. Unlike projection, projective identification is an unconscious process of ridding oneself of unwanted feelings by inducing them in someone else. I believe the quote ends there. So it seems like you see this in Shakespeare's uh, Edward de Vere's work. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that, Karen. Uh, as you uh, read that back to me, I was remembering that this occurred to me as I was writing the chapter. Some of the ideas I had already thought of, written about uh, before, uh, but that one uh, struck me afresh. I always find it helpful to uh, see another performance of a play that I might want to write about uh, and certainly to reread it carefully. You know, the way we do close listening and analysis, close reading, uh, and especially when it comes to Shakespeare, nothing is random. It's a challenge for directors and the people who assist them, so-called dramaturges, if they don't understand lines in Shakespeare and the actors say, well, how am I supposed to act this? I don't know. Let's just leave it out. Uh, but it turns out everything there is meaningful. Uh, so it struck me, and I don't know that anyone has made that um, speculation before, uh, that it, it, it did seem plausible that Hamlet's interactions with Ophelia in the midst of his own uh, struggles with suicidal impulses may have been a form of gaslighting, uh, driving her crazy so she didn't know what to believe anymore. This was a big deal to her. She's a, a young uh, woman. Uh, this is the first time she's been in love, and she's being courted by the prince, who's pretty far ahead of him, of her, uh, in the social uh, structure. And that was a big deal uh, in Elizabethan England and the Denmark being portrayed in the play Hamlet. Uh, and of course, her a father, Polonius, is really worried that uh, Hamlet is just going to have sex with her and abandon her. Um, and so she doesn't know what to think, whether to believe her heart and believe Hamlet or believe her father. And if she's to believe Hamlet, which Hamlet is she supposed to believe? Because he's contradicting himself. Uh, and so there's a lot there. And Karen, the other goal I had uh, in writing that and throughout the chapter was hoping to convince these Shakespeare scholars who were editing the book and contributing other chapters to it, again, that we clinical psychoanalysts might have more to offer them coming from clinical psychoanalysis as opposed to the psychoanalytic theory they're accustomed to reading. And when literature is taught in terms of literary theory, uh, you know, there's one theory, there's another theory, uh, and yet psychoanalytic theory has this distinctive difference that it's uh, an arm, it's, it's an aspect of a broader psychoanalytic project that's also a therapeutic project of helping people through clinical psychoanalysis. And you know, through our clinical experiences, you know so well yourself, 
we do learn far more than what's captured uh, in the literature, no, no matter how comprehensive the literature is. Absolutely. Well, I think we probably have, I have enough questions for another podcast. So maybe if we stop for today, we could call this part one and we'll talk about, um, you have plenty more to say too, obviously. So <laughs> talk about part two. That would be so, great. So thank you very much. And thank I you. look forward to another conversation. Same here. Talk to you later. Okay.